1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Born and raised in New Orleans, Dr. Enshante Franklin is a forensic social work consultant, community advocate, and author. She is dedicated to the art of prose, storytelling, and poetry through the lens of resilience. She served five years as a New Orleans police officer during and after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Dr. Franklin earned a bachelor in social work from Southern University at New Orleans and received her two master's degrees at Southern University as well. She received her doctoral degree in philosophy at the Whitney M. Young Jr. School of Social Work at Clark Atlanta University. She did all of this while caring for her mother and grandmother. Dr. Franklin is the author of The Blue Lotus Flower, which tells her story of resilience, pushing through the traumas of an impoverished, flooded city, facing childhood pain and community violence, And Central City, New Orleans. She currently is Assistant Professor of Social Work College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences at the University of the Virgin Islands and CEO of Enchanted Links Consulting Firm, LLC, a multi-service services consulting firm. After the deaths of her mother and grandmother, she began thinking about caregiving and life beyond grief. She shares information and tips from her workshops, giving the self-love energy while caregiving the resilient women of color. Dr. Franklin, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm going to refer to you as Enchante if that's all right.
2: Well, Dr. Franklin, I want to welcome you to Collections by Michelle Brown. Um, You've got an interesting background. Uh, One of the things that we will get to is talking about caregivers. I know especially in this time of COVID, a lot of people are thinking about it, and just as life goes on, but um, you were, you know, I met you through Zami Nobla, which is um, based in Atlanta, but I know that you originally are from New Orleans. Um, that That's where you were born and raised? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I know that a lot of what you did, I was looking at it, you went through Hurricane Katrina and the after effects. How did that affect the work? that you were doing. I know that you have uh, a master's in social work, you've got an MA, you've got a PhD, but how did Katrina impact
3: your life? <clears throat> oh, yeah, Katrina. So um, when Ka- Hurricane Katrina hit, I was a New Orleans police officer, and um, I was probably like four years um um, on the job, and then I was in school for social work. I had just finished my um, undergraduate in social work, and then I started my master's degree in social work. So I was bringing um, police work and social work together. So it it formed my life, and it caused it my life into a forensic social worker pretty much um, during that time. So um, it showed me how strong I was. Um, it showed me um, how to bring community together during um, the most horrific times, which was a disaster. Um, New Orleans was like an anarchy, right? They're <clears throat> like the, our leadership had um, left the city. So it was just me and a psychiatrist, a forensic psychiatrist left there and, um, there were individuals in the city who had um, severe and persistent mental illness. This meant these were your individuals who were used to going to, like, um, mental health centers in the community for their medication, and those those um, resources weren't there for them anymore. You had individuals coming out of um, forensic hospitals, and they were looking for catchment programs, and that wasn't there. So those individuals were just roaming around the city streets. So this doctor and I created these um, forensic, a, a forensic assertive community treatment team and a regular uh, assertive community treatment team. These were clinical teams that treated people with um, uh, who had frequent interaction with law enforcement. Um, but they suffered with um, severe, persistent mental illnesses, and then you had individuals who were used to having uh, family supports or those resources I told you know mentioned earlier, and they weren't present. So we became that team during Hurricane Katrina to care for those um, those people. But it. For me, it shaped my life um, because I I had to walk away from one career and then go into another career. So I had to grow up pretty pretty early. So I, I never really got that in between. I had to really like always be doing that disaster work or that work um, caring for people um, outside of caring for them for those people I was caring for my own family which was my grandmother um, my mother and nieces and nephew at the time so just holding two vibrations and understanding that I could do it right Um, and this was the work that I was being called to do so it was a pivotal moment for me in the awakening for me Mm -hmm. Um, and it was the more that I gave to This program, it was a program based out of Pennsylvania. So the people who wrote the program did not understand the culture um, of New Orleans. And so the more I gave, um, it kind of burned me out, and I had to choose between uh, family and community. And so I chose my family at the time, and I walked away and started um, – that was the – the the defining moment of me becoming a caregiver, because after a disaster, you realize um, that the elders don't move around the way that they Mm -hmm. do. And so I began to see um, what that did to even like um, elders that I would go and visit when I was a uh, police officer on the street before I went into becoming a full service uh social worker because police work is just like social work you know and and when you when you call the police to your home it's a privilege for them to come and get your your story right and so no one is just calling a social worker to their home um to have dinner with them unless they know that. Mm-hmm. they're calling them because they're in crisis and so i just begin to take everything that i learned as a student in school and i brought it into my home and it, it it helped me um, be able to be the best caregiver. I think that I could have been um, during the time of my grandmother and my mother. They're they're deceased now, um, but I, I gave it my all. And you know, even now in their in their transition, I still feel them and and hear them and feel their their blessings every day from the the hard work and the tears that I put into uh, being everything that they, they needed and wanted me to be. And now as um, as they're gone and in transition, I now, um, and it's amazing, I'm living every desire, everything I've ever written in a journal, right, I thought about, I'm living that life. And it's because of um, all that I put in without complaining, um, because mm. I knew it would end. I knew it would end. Um, I was constantly praying, and I would constantly um, ask for spirit to help me on every journey I was on. So I'm not really a, a highly religious person, but I am. I do believe in God, but I am spiritual. And so I, I hear these soft voices and I've always followed them, even as a caregiver. You know, sometimes it's not easy. You know, your, your, your lovely grandmother could get Alzheimer's and become like the, the meanest old lady you've ever <laughs> witnessed in your life, but uh-huh. you have to be able to understand that, you know, this is not them. It is, you know, something that has attacked their brain, you know, their cognitive levels. And so the more that we – so the thing is now we we know more now in this time, in, this, in these generations, right? We know more, and so the more that we learn and we know about um, – illnesses and you know cognitive behaviors of um children adults and and our elders and the more that we see this happening on television we begin now to see oh my goodness i'm not by myself because it could feel like you are it could feel Mm -hmm. like you're on that journey by yourself no one knows what's happening um underneath that roof (laughs) but you but that's not true you know um and so that that's why i started um so at the time, as a caregiver, I couldn't talk to people. I, I could only um, just stay focused, right, and continue to hold a, a vibration of doing what my mom and my grandmother wanted to see for me, right. Get your at my grandmother. You always used to say, "Get your learning, girl. You gotta get your learning, uh, so you huh? can understand the. <laughs> you can understand the world around you. And I was like, child, I understand the world. But now. I get it, and I I hear that voice now. And so um, after my PhD, I was like, Grandma, when is enough education enough? though? when is when is enough learning enough? And I just felt that spirit like, well done, you know, you you've done it, you know. And so, yeah, it it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy um, going to college, going to um, get a PhD, taking care of my elders. But then they would share with me, right? They would share um, their checks at the the beginning of the month with me. If I was in Atlanta and I needed noodles, something to eat, this mm-hmm. is what they would do for me while I was in school. So when I got a big lump sum of money, and this is so afrocentric, where we go out, you know, you send the child off to school and they send the money back. So when I would get a big, long sum, I would send that back to them. But lo and behold, they would save it to send it to me. You know, now I, oh. I see how uh-huh. it went. Mm-hmm. But, you
2: know, I up. just mm-hmm.
3: Yes, but I knew I had to complete this, but I knew I still had to be there for them. And I, I don't know, I can't tell you how it happened, but I, I did it. And even um, as a Ph.D. student, getting on the mega bus and the Greyhound bus and the Amtrak and going home every weekend as a student um, to see my grandmother and my mother because I couldn't sit in class the next week without knowing how they were doing. (laughs) So I would still, you know, get on um, and then still staying connected to the the mothers in in the community in New Orleans, uh, working at the coroner's office as a forensic social worker on the weekend. So I had a a plan to every time I, tra- I traveled, the coroner's office was paying for it. So it wasn't really hurting me. And so it was a two in one. I got to see my family, I got to work and care for um, the mothers who were caregivers for aging adult children with mental illness, severe pers- persistent mental illness. Um, and so all of this was happening. So not only was I a caregiver, for my family, my grandmother, my mother, um, nieces and nephews, but also for community mothers and their mm-hmm. children, you know, um, on the weekends working like almost 64 hours, like that Friday, all the way until Monday morning on call. But these women would call in the middle of the night because their children would have um, relapsed or their children would um, have these um, – these active symptoms where they're not taking their medication so they would need to be um um, hospitalized so i would write those orders the order of protective custody and then police would have to come out and get them bring them to the hospital to get stabilized and then that would give the mother at least a, a night or three to rest and then they started all over again because in mental health you know once once someone has a, a diagnosis of schizophrenia, bipolar I mean it's with them. So you're only mm-hmm. um managing, you're assisting them. You're not but there were mothers who hoped that it would just go away like um like a like pneumonia, like a cold, but they needed mm-hmm. more than a doctor's to diagnose their, their children. They needed someone to help them understand what that was about, and, and it was like my pro bono stuff, like going on the um, Internet and researching this stuff, reading books, staying up through the night, writing a report so that I can go back and help this mother understand what she was looking at when it came to her son or uh, when it came to their daughter. So you know how- that's how Katrina shake me. <laughs>
2: You know how they say there's no coincidences. And you know, you talked about like being on the police force and being a social worker and caring for it. But that, uh, you know, in your bio, it talks about your uh, community advocate. All that gave you a lens to look at community because, like, when you, when you, something goes wrong in a community, sometimes you don't know what's happening. And, like, you know what it is to be a caregiver, those stressors are or an elder who's seen their neighborhood change while physically, emotionally, and mentally, they might mm-hmm. be changing, and that can cause that. And you have all of these tools, and your tools kit that allows you to have a really unique vision on what's happening in community. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you I thought- write these. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So I write these. So it's what did I what did I call it? Um, um, it's like blue notes, right? It's like um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: looking out at community from a social worker's lens when someone is, uh, when a young man is murdered in community, or someone who's LGBTQ um, is. Um, uh, discriminated against or if a police officer is killed, all of those different visions, I'm, I, all of those different lens, you're right. I'm able to look at them at, from an ethnographic lens, right? I use, um, I'm an ethnographer. I like to sit with people, hear their stories, um, and just really, really be mindful and emotionally intelligent that... Uh, In understanding that people need to just get out stories, right? And stories is medicine. Mm -hmm. So when they cough this story out, um, or they just say, if someone says, How's your day going? or if they come to a caregiver group meeting, or like the rock tables, or they come to the rock tables and they're sitting and they're talking about um, the issue, because the tables are are very thematic. They're they're themes, right? So you give a, a theme in, It's not about who's speaking. So I never announce my tables with a guest speaker, right? My tables are about the topic. And so those people who are experiencing this topic or who's experiencing this, that's who's going to vibrate there. They're not going to vibrate because uh, Beyonce is sitting at my table talking about her experience with the flower. They're going to come because it's their experience. Do you find,
2: like, in a lot of communities, because I think that storytelling is so important, and especially the need to capture those stories, because sometimes, like you said, it it doesn't have to be a big celebrity. It can be the lady who has lived on that block for 40, 50 years and seen a whole lot of things happen and come and go. Mm -hmm. Her story can not only identify trauma, but it can also be inspirational to those who might not see any hope, to see her, her perseverance and resilience. I think storytelling is so important. How do you, and I like the fact that you don't see that you have a a guest speaker, but how do you encourage people to tell their stories? Because, you know, we, you and I probably both know people who will say, you know, what happened to me doesn't matter, but it does.
3: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, again, um, using like a, a mindfulness approach and storytelling, like bringing people together to the table and and just having a conversation. Right? If you don't want to talk at the table this week, you're gonna come back and talk because the food is always good, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, oh, sure, I'm right. just that sure of it. So uh-huh. you're so if. So at some point something's going to um shake in you and you're gonna you're gonna make a comment, you're gonna say something and I'm gonna catch it and we're gonna begin the process and talk about it because storytelling is nothing more than processing. When you start to tell your story, you remember something from that day or from that time, um, that you didn't remember, you didn't pay attention to then because your maturity level or your conscious level or it just wasn't your time to wake up and get it yet, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and now it, it may be, you know, and then, like, our world is shifting. Like, people who used to sit, up, sit back and be quiet and not say anything, they're having to speak now. Those who used to talk a lot and had everything to say, they have to sit back now and they have to be quiet. No one wants to hear from them anymore. They want to hear mm-hmm. what the meat is where the food is, what is happening in today's time? You know, what does does the world really, because we've shifted. We've shifted into caring about each other. Mm -hmm. You know,
2: I also admire and respect the fact that you were doing all this, but then you said, you know what, it's time to take care of family. And, you know, I understand that because, I mean, there was a, my mother had been like, the super caregiver, you know, and she died suddenly. And it was sort Mm. of like I felt in my soul and my spirit that I had to step up and do that role. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you look around at other people who don't step in and do that, but the things you learn during that period of time, the closeness that you get with family members as you take care of them, and that amazing gift you have to be with them at, at that point in their life and even mm-hmm. as they transition. I mean, it's, it's like such an amazing gift. But often you find, I mean, I have relatives who it was like, nah, you know, you, you've just given up too much. I mean, you know, put them in a home, do this, you know, but they don't want to mm-hmm. step up and do that. What mm-hmm. pulled at you that sort of said that this is the time what matters is family and me being there, that caregiver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It,
3: c- because you know what happens. So this is what I believe happened, and it was—it's my my journey. I believe that you will get that time in your youth where you can run, you can run for the people, right? You can you can do all of this. You can. Have um, community meeting. You can you can make it to every party. You can run like the sun is nowhere behind you, right? But there comes a time where you have to slow down and you have to recognize who got you through that run, right? Who got mm-hmm. you
0: through
3: through that um, through that 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 karma, all of those things you've gone through, and then because they're suffering now, their time has come where they need caregivers because they've been your caregivers. And then what you plant into your your elders, it is what you're planting into your future as an elder because you're going to get back what you give. Not that you should do it because of that, because I don't have children. I cannot have children. I don't know who. I don't have um, family members that I'm connected to after mom and grandmother passed. I don't know who will come for me as an mm-hmm. elder, but I know that I put in enough flowers, I put in enough care that yeah. spirit has to take care of me. The universe has to take care of me, right? And so if I can do what I can do, uh, while I still have my bread and my the cogn- my cognitive levels to make sure I'm good and I'm not a a burden on someone, then I'll be an in independent living because I already recognize and I know more than we know in the past, I don't want to do that to nieces and nephews. And then they don't have the mental capacity to take care of me as an elder. Mm-hmm. So I have to make sure that that's taken care of for myself and then go on with living the rest of my life, right? So when they come from my paperwork, I've already um, spelled out how I want to go um, or, or or how I want to leave this world how I want to be taken care of. But my people, my grandmother and my mother, they didn't have that, so they sent me to school to get it, right? So I went to school and I got it, and maybe I was the one to shift a few things in our generation because we no longer do um, funerals the way that they've done them traditionally. You know, because it's about, for me, it's about a memorial. It's about more being more personal. And more intentional, you don't say goodbye at a funeral, you know you release, so you know, and then, looking at how we worship we we come we come to um to serve to commune and give thanks right, and mm-hmm. that's it, and we put so much pressure on ourselves so when you so in that second part where you're you're called to take care of family, I'm glad I did it, but some people don't do it, they don't listen right. And they go another way. And so what happens is you never get to live your dreams and your life and your desires because that's stuck in the back of your head. You missed that call. You didn't do it. If it's heavy for you, go do it. But Mm -hmm. if it's light and you have more support helping you, then you get on with the support network, right? If it's a unit and it's a healthy unit, we're going to take care of grandma, mama, sister together. That's that's all. But because of what they've done to the black family, that doesn't always happen. Mm. Everyone does not share the, the 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 token of taking care of grandma, a mama, a sister, a brother, whoever. But from day one, we were always left with grandma and auntie. You
2: know, yeah. They always say how it takes a village to raise a child, but it it mm-hmm. takes a village to. To to transition
3: the
2: transition to elder. Yeah, really, from, from cradle to grave, we, it takes a village mm-hmm. to be there, you know. And, and, and I know what you mean. It's like sometimes we sort of get caught up in things and we're not there. We don't recognize it. But then, like you say, you see, suddenly you see people who are coming together who have chosen families. And you know that they're going yeah. to look out for each other. Well, I know, I mean, it's sort of like you have that moment and you wonder, well, in fact, I've had people say, well, you know, you're doing all this, who's going to take care of you? And, you know, but I didn't, it's not like, a, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm expecting somebody to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I believe that as you walk through life, it'll be there.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. those,
2: those people who will love and care about you will be there.
3: Mhm. Wow. what do? hmm So I had models like my great great grandmother uh, passed away. I watched her last breath leave her her body into a a, a silhouette of a energy, right? But what I watched was in typical Louisiana, a bunch of women come together underneath a roof and take care of this old lady, um, mm-hmm. until she left, right? Mm-hmm. And so because of what what I watched and 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 you know what mattered to the the women in my family I continued to do it because I didn't see that nowhere else right and that felt right it felt mm-hmm. like the the right thing to do it didn't feel like a strain or a pull so you have to do what feels right in the spirit no matter what Anyone else, sister, brother, auntie, say you you giving all your time. What about your life? Like spirit's gonna provide for you, and you mm-hmm. you know it's gonna it's gonna provide the most beautiful moments for you. When you become a caregiver, mm-hmm. you don't have time you know to be looking at what the world. But it slows you down. It slows you mm-hmm. down to understand that every day we're dying. We die every day, every day. Just because you go to the doctor and get your checkups and they say you're fine. You just slowed it down, but everyday mm-hmm. life is leaving us. So you get to see that like up close and personal, and how that soul is experiencing their end of life. So I say my my mom had a good end of life. She was in hospice. <laughs> she did whatever she wanted to do, you know, <laughs> you know, from cussing me, from being mad and angry. <laughs> but today, guess what? That tr- that 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 prepared me for. It prepared me for the environment. I'm not working. Sometimes people are really, really harsh. But because I had just come through, mom going in and out, up and down, I'm being the sweetest I could be. And then she's being the meanest because she's afraid to mm-hmm. go to sleep because she's afraid to leave the body. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of went up and down with that. So when people do that now, I'm like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't move me. hmm you know, and, and,
2: yeah, it's interesting that you talk about because, you know, I had found, like, in one of the, the people who I ended up being the caregiver for, she was telling, and in storyteller, she was telling me stories about people, you know, who I remember seeing growing up who I could never figure out how they were related, but in her telling me this story that I never would have heard unless I had, without being her caregiver, that That was part of it. It was like, well, the family saw you know Aunt Helen and she had nobody, and she did that, and they she became Aunt Helen, and she was part of the mm-hmm. family, and they did that and it was like, I never would have known that had I not cared for her, but it also mm-hmm. sort of told me this is what's in this is what we do, you know
3: this yeah. is what yeah. we do. Yes, that and and you're speaking of something. So when when it so my mom had before she passed, she had a, a a traumatic brain injury, and she received that traumatic brain injury after her mom went into the hospital. My grandmother and she was sick, so my mom and my grandmother was really really close. They was really really tight. And so when my grandmother went into a coma, my mom knew she was getting ready to lose her mom. Something happened. She just blanked out. She hit the floor. And so what what happened with my grandmother and her Alzheimer's is I had to do research. I had to keep up. Because everyone else had gotten frustrated with them, right? My mom had her first stage of dementia, too. But everyone was getting frustrated only because they didn't understand the diagnosis, right? They weren't educated, they weren't even trying. But they understood that a change had happened, and they thought that the elders knew better or they knew what they were doing. But what happens is sometimes you'll have an elder talking to you, and they're five years old again, or they're 15 again. Um, you'll have one saying, I want to go home. Most of them say, I want to go home. I want to go home. Because they reverted back to childhood, and then what happens in childhood, you go back to your infancy, and then you're gone. You're out of the body. Mm. So it's about understanding um, transition along with the, the prognosis and the diagnosis. Like it's bringing all of that together and willing and have a willingness to be on a journey with that individual who is in who is experiencing their end of life journey we're not experiencing the end of life journey they are although mm-hmm. we are perishing daily anything can happen to us, but we know for sure, and they know for sure so imagine to know for sure my mom on march the third twenty twenty When the world was getting their prognosis for uh, COVID-19, my mother was getting her prognosis of having seven months to live, right? And so imagine knowing uh, you have a a timeline. So imagine what that does to a soul. You know, you don't know what to do with that. You don't know. This lady barely slept. (laughs) So that meant Mm -hmm. that for for a whole year, but my mom got 11 on the 7th, so she, she she lived 17 years. But all of that time, that whole year and a half, I was working on my dissertation 2020 as well. I graduated um, July 2020. I still was writing from my mother's kitchen. I presented a dissertation. Mm. I had to leave the kitchen. I presented my um, perspective um, in her kitchen, but then the defense, I had to go to a hotel and set up everything in the hotel for the day that's how determined I was but not for me it was for those women right you will not leave this world without knowing that I listened to everything you said and and I meant that I was going to make something of myself your work was not in vain we were a poor family for a a very long time but we will not be under my watch
2: mm-hmm
3: and so you know that's that's just what I meant, and so, yeah, it's about understanding you know what what their cognitive levels are, and then understanding when you've reached your point and you need help, right? I had reached a point of burnout i needed I needed a team, so mm-hmm. because of my social work skills, I called in hospice teams, and for my best friends throughout twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one um, was my mother's hospice team, was her her chaplain, her her nurse. That's the people I spent most of my time talking to while I was working on my dissertation. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
2: Well, we're going to take our first break. I mean, uh, I so resonate with you on so many levels. It's just amazing. But we're going to take our first break and we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. We're back here on collections by Michelle Brown. I am talking with Dr. and Franklin. I mean, I know. I mean, I, I can. I can just. I know that you know, but how proud they are of you that you went ahead and and you finished it. You got your PhD. Plus, you you didn't let anything go. I mean, that is just like. What a a great honor. You listened to them. They were telling you what to do and you did it because that is just like such a a great way of honoring them and the sacrifice that they did. The fact that I loved how you said you'd send them money and they put it aside and listen to you. I think (laughs) that it's just like, you know, that they were caregiving for you as you were caregiving Mm -hmm. for them. You know, it's sort of like it goes back and forth and it never It never ends. You know, I think that that's just, like, incredible. That's beautiful. That is really beautiful. You know how you were talking about being with your, where people were as they were going through this part in life? And, you know, and and to accept them and just, just sort of be with them, not, you know, put them down or whatever, but just how do you accept where they are at and talk to them and help them make that transition? Because, you know, hey, we all have an expiration date. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you, you know, when, after, you know, you told me that they hit both transition, when were you ready to, how did you deal with grief? And then say, okay, well, now it's time for me to, to pick up and start to do this work that I've been, Trained not only in school but by them to do. mm
3: Hmm. Ooh. So, so I I believe that I believe that we are extensions of our mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grand great grandmothers. Like I really believe that I'm an extension of the the women in my DNA system, right? Um. Mm-hmm. So, when they passed, so when my grandmother passed, I spent time alone. I took that time mm-hmm. um lit my candles, I listened deeply um for that voice. So when my grandmother was um living, I would go um when I would visit New Orleans and get in her bed ever since I was a child. Mm-hmm. Get in her bed and I would put my mm-hmm. mouth next to her mouth, my nose next to her mouth, and I would breathe in her air so that the universe wouldn't get, catch it. That's my thinking, but I would mm-hmm. breathe it all into me. So my thinking when she passed was that this lady is gonna come alive in me, right? And so it's about their DNA then awakening in me. My mom came alive in me, so when my mom passed, that meant I spent time alone again. And I became this independent woman who had to speak for herself. I could no longer call my mother and say, Guess what they told me? Guess what they did to me? So what do I say back? What do I I had to depend on what was in me already, what was already planted in me already. So how I deal with my grief I I'm I am a radical I believe in self care, you know, no matter what. And for me self care is not the, the average thing people think it is, um, getting my hair done, getting my toes. I mean, you know, that's that's self-care, but for me, mine is radical. It's about my spirit. It's about going deep into my soul to understand what has been broken, what has been fractured. Um, who have I lost, right? and understanding the part that they played in my life, what part of my heart they set in, because there's a hole there. And so that becomes time to nurture myself. And the reason that um, I deal so well with grief, and it's actually a part of my work now, is because as a young girl, my brother was murdered in New Orleans. He was um, My brother was like 24 years old. I was like 17, 17 years old was my last year of high school. And he was murdered in one of the New Orleans Housing Projects. And that, for me, was my first big loss, right? And so I witnessed what it did to my grandmother, my aunt, and my mother. So those women, when they grieved, they would go into dark rooms. And, and they would grieve. They wouldn't come out for days. They wouldn't eat. They would just cry. You know, and they became really, really um Isolated from the world. Uh, one of my aunts lost her son. She isolated again. My grandmother lost her mother, and that was the first time I ever saw my grandmother cry, but her children didn't even see her cry. She cried in her room, mm-hmm. and I was in that room with her when she cried. The second time she cried, she lost her son right um during Hurricane Katrina. That was the second time I, I witnessed my grandmother cry. So I'm watching you know, her strength, and I'm taking that in, and I'm just like, I act like her, you know, like, I Mm -hmm. I didn't take the, so I didn't take the route that mom took. Mom took a route when she lost my brother. She lost her job. She started gambling. She lost the house, so she took that route. I saw what it did to her. Grandma, um, not to say that it was all healthy. Grandma isolated, right, and so for me, Today, I say, I'm not staying in a dark room. I'm not isolating. I'm not gambling. I'm not drinking. My, I'm not doing any of that. I'm going to deal with the hurt. I'm going to face it head on. I'm going to, you know, get myself through this so that I can, you know, continue my life and do and, and understand why I've come here. And at the end of the day, my journey, because grief hit our line, so like grief hit our lineage so bad. Like women just couldn't handle it, right? And I realized that even about myself, you know, some time ago. But now, um, because they wouldn't go to counseling, they wouldn't go and get any mental health care, I go I get my mental health treatment. I went to grief counseling, um, even in relationship after even when if I'm getting into a new relationship, we go and see a therapist. If I'm ending it, we go. to see it. Th- you know, because I just mm-hmm. believe in in being healthy cognitively. And sometimes when things eject from you, that's like um like checking out elect ele- uh, electricity, uh, electric pole, right? And you don't know, like it's like all of your circuits are like haywire. So even as like women, I watch the women in my family never go get help and i And I watched what it does what it did to them, so for me, I went and educated myself on all the things that I watched about them, and I made sure that every time I felt bad, I felt sick, um even um anxiety runs in out in our family, you know all of those things. I know that I have to keep a calm environment. I know that my work has to look a certain way um I'm not doing anything that sets my body on fire. Um, unless it's re- So I do spiritual readings. Spiritual readings always set me on fire. So that's the only thing that I let set my body on fire. My work, uh, environment, jobs, none of that. It's all, for me, it's about mission work. So mm-hmm. that's how I deal with my grief. Like I, I come, even in teaching, um, I lost my mom the first semester I was teaching um, on, on island. And I would go and I would teach, and then after that, I would come back, I would cry, I would kick, scream, write, do it all, and then I would go back the next day, teach. But over a period of time and therapy, like, I wouldn't stay down too long. I was able to find my bearing and come back up. And now all of that grief has turned into nothing but love, right? So it's like um, what could I create from that place of um, where I once felt all of this hurt, and I take the love that my grandmother and mom poured into me, and I've, I've merged it, right? And so whatever the world gets, it's all of us. It's so you know, much I ca- um, care. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, because there are still people who have – that stigma about, you know, mental health care. I know my mother would be one, and I was telling somebody once, and my mother at a certain point would say, well, you know, it's time for you to just buck up, you know, and be tough. And I, I often go back and I think about what led to her sudden death, and I said, you know, and then realizing what she was carrying that she didn't talk about. And I believe in, you know, at a certain point, I knew I needed to talk to someone and because I wasn't getting it from family members who just sort of thought, you know, they were like, oh, you're so strong. But I knew that they mm-hmm. needed it. I also noticed that you found release, you found expression through the arts. You know, I know that you, you've you done poetry, you've done multicultural dance. Was, is all that way that you found to get this out, to express and... and
3: Yo, you? Oh, definitely. And through and oh, thank you for that question. Yes, cool. So I've written a book. It's called um, The Blue Lotus Flower, right? Um, it's a book, and then it's a uh, journal as well. I wrote it in 2016, and so for me, um, writing is my outlet. And then all of a sudden. Writing became a gift. Like, I realized it's my gift, right? And so then in my profession, I've been able to write programs based on my gift and the experience that I've written in the the little memoir, right? And so what happened for me is I – so, yeah, so I write a lot. And most of my grief, most of the hurt, I just write it out. It's like a cough out. So, yeah, that's my outlet, definitely writing mm-hmm. and being creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's something that's good about it. And, you know,
2: but I have you ever, What I have experienced is like there's something that I have written to express a place of pain or trans, or growth. And then if I've read it in a public space, I've had someone come in like, you know, my experience was different, but you know what? I get what you're talking about. In fact, just recently I had someone who said, you know, I had stopped writing, but having you talk about writing, I know I need to get back to it. Have you had that, you know, people who, you know, hear all these other great things that you've done, but then because of, of that artistry, that being ability to write and journal, and when they hear about that, that that has maybe helped them reach the next step?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, because I self-published my books, um, I have a high school friend, his name is um, Lawrence. He wrote a book called um, Raised in Violence. And so um, one day I, I saw him, he was at a uh, at a pop-up shop, at a pop-up event, and I, I, I stood there and I talked with him, and it occurred to both of us that we were writing about the same thing and so I told him that I wrote my book from a traumatic brain, right, like um, a child who was growing up be- who had been bullied, um, sexually molested, um, had a, um early loss, all of those things. And then he told me he wrote his from um, the pain of a young boy having a mom and dad um, who were um, substance abuse users, right? And so as I continued to talk with him, I I recognized, wait, I am on the the right track. So that was the first time. So then working with a young lady, um, telling her how I started my book, um, Dana went off and she wrote her book. She said that it inspired her to write. So she hasn't come full out yet um, to get it published or anything. She's still going through that stage of getting the confidence, right? So once you write Mm it, you have to – you know gain that confidence that someone actually wants to hear your story, so that's the phase we're in right now, but yes, all of the time if if they don't write a book, they'll write a um a paper um about their experiences or they'll be um doing some research and they'll they'll call me up and ask me, you know what do I thought? give me a framework or or guide me. Um, and then I'll get the feedback after. Girl, that was a blown away workshop. You know, you did that, but I'm saying I didn't do it. You did it. You, you know, mm. I was a tool to motivate you, but you had to go and do that work. And so, so many times we we give people we give our um, power away to people, right? Just because I'm a mentor doesn't mean that um, I own the right to what you create, right? doesn't mean uh-huh. that I own the right to all of your movement. But when I say own the right, it doesn't mean that you should be saying thank you to me every time you do something, but you have mentors and people out there that have that expectation. She, you know, I taught her this, I gave this, and she never says thank you, but I already said it when you did it. Exactly. You know, exactly. there are other people out here that are giving support and they need that pull-up now. Mm-hmm. You were for your people. You were for, for me during that time. But, you know, you've given to me all that you could, so now let's support others. And so that's what I give to my mentees. I, I always tell them, don't ever let anybody um, use your credentials or use you as a, a a poster child, right? Always stand in your own power because once you – come outside of it, you start to be who people want you to be, and you never, ever see who you truly are from the inside. Mm -hmm.
2: And like you said, and it doesn't take away from you. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. going to continue to do you. But this is another voice that needs to come out and to do that. You know, that you often hear people who say, oh, well, you have to pass the mic, but they never give it up. You know, they never give right. it up. Right. So this person <laughs> that they poured so much into never gets their time on the mic because they just won't give it up. <laughs> and it's sort of like, well, I, uh, I, I know that there's more out there for me. So if you're up and coming, I can hand you the mic and say, hey, you know, this mm. time, you don't need to hear from Michelle. You would heard Michelle, you know. It's like I right. there, that's what I'm sick of hearing about Michelle. You need to talk to me. <laughs> you know? But, but, that, yeah. but I, that is so, you know, really, and that, and that's what part of a mentor is to raise them up. It's like you've, you've planted the seed and you've done all that, but you want it to grow.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that's amazing. Yep. So you. You are coming to me from the Virgin Islands. You go back and forth, sometimes Virgin Islands, sometimes I know that you're in Atlanta. How did this come about? How hard was it for you to, I mean, you were tested in New Orleans. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: How hard was it for you to do this pivot to be, you know, you're doing you, you're doing what you're supposed to, but often, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to, to leave that place where you were you were tested in fire where you became you. Oh
3: yeah. So I left New Orleans um, to to go to, to 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 relocate to Atlanta, like in uh, 2014, and then I started the PhD program 2015. So I'd already left, right? And mm-hmm. I was already um, planning to um, stabilize myself in Georgia. Um, I did research on. So my dissertation was about African Amer I looked at um a study of factors among African a study of cultural resilience. Wait, wait. Factors that influence cultural resilience among African American women um in New Orleans who had experienced post Katrina. What I wanted to know was why they stay, why they come back. So two hundred women <laughs> um Told me they said that um, it was their social support, it was their culture, Mardi Gras, all of these things. So for me, that was that that was the the the, the thing on my heart to leave the city after seeing um, seeing the city city become devastated. To leave um, and go and get my PhD and then come back and become a professor at Southern University. That was all I wanted to do, but after I had gotten out of the community and I started doing research and traveling around the world, studying abroad, like things began to change for me. Um, my travel started to shape me into, um, uh, a researcher. So I didn't want to go back home because uh. I already knew it was home and I, but I wanted to create something for home. And so after I graduated, so my, so the, again, the last year I was to graduate, um, was in May of 2020 when the pandemic hit. But during the time I was home, when the school closed, I was home with mom. Finally, I began to see how sick mom was, right? So while I was away, mom would be like, I would send her money constantly. And I was just, as long as she left me alone, she didn't call me and tell me nothing was wrong. I could study. I could do what I'm supposed to do. But it's one thing when you're not with them. But it's a whole nother thing when you're with them every day and you cannot Uh leave that house. Uh So it was during COVID and we got stuck into the house. We got stuck in the home together. And that was then I realized how sick mom really was and, you know, all the things that she wasn't sharing with me. So I decided just to stay um, and then just work on my dissertation while I was home and so I I finished in um I didn't finish in May. I finished in June. May June yeah, the next month, um I finished and then we wind up graduating. And so I stayed. But then um the Virgin Island in July, um the, US, the the school was looking for professors to come because they had just opened the school of social work. The island needed um, more manpower um, in terms of social workers, and there wasn't any because they wasn't educated any, right? So none wasn't graduating from the university, only nurses. So they started the school of social work, and they reached out to uh, Clark Atlanta to, to see if they had anyone who had studied women and disasters and anything like that. And lo and behold, I was a um, PhD student who had just graduated, graduated, and I studied um, African American women and disasters and their children and all of this. So that that July they called, and I said no because I was a caregiver. Uh
2: huh.
3: And so um, I I took the job at Southern University, and I worked there all the way until, um, like, I I stayed the whole year. And then something like like discrimination started happening. It just started getting really, really bad. The professor that was my research professor, when I was a master-level student at Southern, became my colleague. And so when I came, they took all of her research courses and gave them to me to, to teach. And so I guess that started some type of um, discomfort for her. And so I started to feel the backlash of that, and it was very uncomfortable. But moving through, um, I felt good that I was there to do what I had in my a desire in my heart to do. So this thing came back around again, Um the University of Virgin Islands called again, but the dean called and talked to me this time. And she said, I had to talk to you. And so we had a two-hour conversation. I told her that I was a caregiver, what was going on, but they still took me on. And I talked to my mom about it, and my mom was like, go, girl, just go. And I said, are you going to come? And she was like, no, I'm not going to come. But then finally she was like, yeah, I'm going to come. So I went ahead and I did it. But I came over in August and I set up my life and my dog passed away so I went back to Georgia and I was in Georgia um like sept August yeah, like August the end of August, Snowy passed away and I was in all the way until like the next my mom passed away just say the the month after, September twenty eighth. The dog huh. passed August twenty eighth, mom passed, so huh. I was still over there. And so all I did was set up a life on the island and then had to go back. Uh, My mom had experienced a uh, hurricane before her passing. So I was just there all of this time. And after that, mom passed away and, and I just came back to the island. I shut everything down. And I just knew then that, you know, God had moved me away from family, from all of that, so that I could have this type of healing time next to the ocean. It started to all come together and make sense, and so I just been over here teaching so this is my um second semester it's going August would be one year um I've been over here uh teaching, so that's how I got here uh,
2: wow wow that, that's that's so interesting, you know, but it's like you know you you had you did what you were supposed to, you know like the, the thing about your family and you know that you had that support, but it was also, that was meant for you. They came back and talked to you. And that's, that's just like, great. That is Wow, well, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes things are meant for you, and you're just supposed to do it, you know. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and, and how wonderful, how wonderful. Um, we're going to take another break, because then I want to spend some time talking about what what attracted me to you was you had given a a you provided tips on giving the self love energy while caregiving. So I wanna put some time into that. So we'll be right back. And we're, we've been talking on and off about many things, but a lot about caregiving. You know, I called it, in fact, I, I now I can jokingly say that I had my 10-year death and dying tour where, like, my <laughs> mother, um, she had a brain injury. But, but what happened was she also fell. And so that made a, you know, so she just, like, died like that. And immediately mm. I, I got my father, his sister. And my mother's sister, okay, and his sister had, had uh, dementia. My father had was in the early stages of it. Her sister was just a joy, you know. She was just a, a, a spunky little lady. But I often tell people when I saw that when you talk about giving the self love energy care caregiving. Um, because I'm one of the things that I also recognize is at, there was a period of time when I wasn't doing any self-love. I was just like doing it to our often. I know that one of the times when I finally went and saw someone, I said, I was beginning to feel like not only had I been knocked down, but people just kept kicking me, kicking me, kicking me, and all I could do was keep get up and keep doing it. And with my father and his sister, with my aunt, like I said, it was sort of like a joy to where we were able to share some good memories and then pass on. So often I'll have people going like, oh, how did you do it? I just can't do it. This is so hard. And I'll talk to them and I'll recognize in them that they are so caught up in the caregiving that they're not taking care of themselves. And that's as important. You can't take care of somebody... But if someone said that you can't pour from an empty pot, you know, and when you started talking about this, what were you seeing? Are you still seeing people, especially now with COVID? I mean, you've got people who you're stuck at home taking care of somebody and, or you're suddenly the role is switched. I have a neighbor who her daughter was on a ventilator and now she didn't think that she'd have to be at that level of caregiving for her daughter. What are you seeing, and how important is self-love energy?
3: Oh, that's very important. Um, yeah. So even now, like since I since my journey of self-care, I mean, of of caregiving for my um, blood relatives has has passed even when that journey ended for me i tried to go and find other people to care for right <laughs> but it but it was but it was time for me to rest and somewhere in there i was able to catch that 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 voice that spirit said rest it's time to rest so for me recognizing even now that watching so for me i took a back in in life right i took i started looking at how Instead of looking at people, I look at souls, how souls are experiencing their lives. So sometimes we take on stuff that's not for us, right? So now since I've slowed down and I don't have any body to care for but me, I'm learning how to do that for me. It was very uncomfortable. Um, I'm going to tell you, December, it was very uncomfortable for me to sit with myself there was no family members. There was no mom, no, no grandma, no dog, no nobody. I had to sit with unshante Franklin by herself. And so it was then I really had to trust in who I was, but I didn't know. I didn't know who I was sitting there, right? So at that time, myself had to say, okay, are you going to – it's kind of like the Shawshank Redemption movie. Get busy living or get busy dying. Which one are you going to do? So I said I want to get busy living, and so I started living um, as though I was probably a child again, like enjoying life, right, enjoying um, like adult dolls. Like I, when I was younger, I wanted baby dolls, and we couldn't afford baby. They didn't buy me baby dolls. They bought me little whatnots, right? So now <laughs> that I'm an adult, I buy little um, dolls when I travel the world. I'll buy a doll from that place. Um, Because it's something symbolic for me and, you know, feeding the little girl, taking care, nourishing the little girl in me, Mm -hmm. becoming my own mother, becoming my own grandmother. And sometimes we have to mother ourselves. We have to um, become our own caregivers. And so to become your own caregiver while you are caregiving is most important as well. When my mom, when I was a caregiver, caring for my mom, um, less than a a year ago, I had to also become my own girlfriend, my own mother while I was with my mother because my mother was no longer in her body. Like, it was kind of like the, um, my mom had started walking, it's like the soul shuffle, um, where people just, they don't have a lot of strength to lift their legs, they shuffle the feet, right? And so I, I started to realize what was happening with her. And then hospice will tell you uh, what's happening with the body. So there are phases that people go through at the end of life journey. So it was almost like I was on a timeline to become, to learn how to become my own caregiver. I had to learn how to um, cook my own meals on Sunday. So I, I started putting myself on, started putting myself on, um, on this um, lifestyle, right, it takes like 12 months to change a lifestyle. So I put myself on a lifestyle pattern where I was going to go for daily walks. Um, I was going to make sure I had a proper meal on Sunday. Um, I started cooking meals on a Wednesday. Like it could be spaghetti, putting it in a, um, a container, just being really, really intentional about caring for myself, but also um we we have these jobs and we have benefits, right? I had a job with, with benefits and never used them. But now recognizing that go take care of yourself, go check your health. Because I'm telling you, as a woman, you go and you get um your health check to know that you're doing good physically will help you mentally. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um so in all of those ways, you know, I get a lot of rest. Um, when I mean no, I mean no. When when someone calls me and say, you know, come and do this, I'm like, no, I've learned how to say no a lot. Um, And then there's are Sunday. Sunday is a rest day for me. I will intentionally be in my bed the whole morning and not let myself up out of the bed the whole uh-huh. morning because I don't get to do it during the weekdays. I hear you.
2: <laughs> I am with you. When you did you find that as it came to your holiday, you know, and it, it sounds like you had come up with what you were going to do to be okay for you. <laughs> Did you get that pushback, you know, like from other people who are, who want to call you and sort of say like, oh, well, you know, you don't have this and that. And how do you express to them that <laughs> you are caregiving for yourself and that you are Okay. Because people often want to put that standard up there to you, and they know you're doing bad, but you are okay. You've developed your own traditions, your own way of living.
3: Yeah. So that came. That was a. That was the backlash that came from uh, uh, from my aunts, my mom's um, sisters. Like they couldn't understand how I could come over to the island. So quickly and and, and start living right but they don't understand they don't they didn't see they don't see um the back end of it those those days where i can barely move because grief is because grief now i'm talking to you but grief still hits my body There, Uh there are days when it hits my body and i cannot move and i have to just be with it right i can't move because It's so much sadness, and these things, it'll come around holidays, like you're talking about, like Christmas or my grandmother's birthday is around Thanksgiving Thanksgiving Day. So that's when um, I'm holding myself in my body because I'm longing for them. The body wants them. It knows that something is missing. So that is when you, it's very important for you to be a nurturer to yourself, to take care of yourself. So when I started recognized, recognizing that that was a pattern for me and it kept happening, now what I do is I create a um, a date for myself. I travel on those days. I make sure that I'm doing something that's really, really um, happy. It, it It has happy tones to it. It has a high vibration to it. And I'm honoring them versus, Um, pulling them down into a low vibration with me, being selfish, because the loved one is no longer suffering. It is uh-huh. us that suffers, right? So when we pulled them down to where we are, like, I remember the good times. So, for instance, my grandmother, and I just recognized this was a gift from my grandmother's spirit, yeah. I'm going to um, Tanzania um, July 7th, we, we leave. My grandmother passed away on July 7th, so I'm always doing something on those days where it would be like I would really be breaking down um, on uh-huh. Thanksgiving Um, plan a trip somewhere. This year I'm thinking about Martha's Venue, right, just somewhere that I've always wanted to go and take care of me. And that's Mm -hmm. radical self-care, like doing those things that you always wanted to do um, and you wasn't able to do. So the the things that I, when I couldn't move around, I would do the things that I wanted to do as a child, um, even if it was skating. my I'll be back in three hours. I'm going to the skating rink. Or even if it was just driving around the city for a few hours, I needed a break. But every time I left my mother, I had... Um, anticipated anxiety, right? Uh, well, they call it anticipated grief, where you every time you get a phone call, every time someone calls, you're anticipating this bad news because you know that you're a caregiver. You know that they can leave at any time. So I was scared every time I laid down to go to sleep. I was scared every time I left out the house to go and get me and mom um, something to eat, to pick up her prescriptions. I, I, I lived all of those days in fear. Uh-huh. Uh. You know, I
2: slept with my phone under the pillow. And that came for, mm-hmm. it was like about a year after my aunt died. And I said, you know what? I might get the call, but I don't have to. I wasn't sleeping because I was anticipating the call that I wasn't going to get anymore, you know. But, you know, I was like, yeah. I'm still sleeping with this false here. <laughs> I wonder if it's going to hit me. You know, it's like, what am I doing? And yep. and it was almost like how you say how you feel them. It was like I heard her say, yeah, put the phone up, you know? Put the phone yep. up. I'm okay, you know? Hmm. Well, I know you're going to have a good time on July 7th because that was my mother's birthday. Yeah, but it is my mother's birthday. Um, but, <laughs> but it does how you, and I mean, really, I mean, it's sort of like, so many things that you say resonate with me i have found it used to be initially around the time that my mother died and initially i was just like overcome with grief i couldn't move to where like you said now this week that time it was on the weekend i went and i did something and you know it's like i said my sister called you weren't home i said no i went to and i went by the water and i enjoyed it i had a good time i said because mm-hmm. that's what mommy would want me to do and she was like, yes. "Oh, she said I was calling because yes. I just knew you'd be in bed." I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a,
3: yeah. So yeah. So like this spring break, every spring break I used to go home to my mom or my grandmother, right? So this spring break, I went to I went to New Orleans, but then I took a cruise. I went to Belize. I went to Mexico, can mm. um uh-huh. Cozumel, right? And I got on a boat. Um, and I had a butler and that experience was just so wonderful to me. But what happens to me, I sit and I I went to eat um, at the buffet, and I was sitting at the table by myself. And all of a sudden, it was like a movie scene. I could see my mom sitting on the opposite side of the table And just smiling at me with a plate in front Mm -hmm. of her that she had gotten off the uh, salad bar. She used to love salad, right? So the plate filled with salad and her just laughing and loving to eat. And so I just got so full and I just cried. You know, I cried. There were happy tears. But Mm -hmm. then there were still tears of missing my mother. Like, damn, you still here with me. And I just I just smiled, but yeah, that was a moment that I had, and I really missed. But I was happy that I was um, courageous and took the trip. <laughs> mhm, mhm.
2: What would you say to someone who is in the caregiving mode to to find that energy? You know, because sometimes there's that that guilt. It's not any guilt, but that 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 responsibility that you know. I can't think, if I think about me, you know, I'm not giving mm-hmm. them everything. What would you tell someone is a good way to start to pivot, to think mm-hmm. about that time that they need to give themselves some self-love?
3: Mhm. Um. Start to activate your spiritual journey. Like start working on you. So take that time. Like you can't go anywhere. You're with your care. You're you're with the person with your loved one. You have to care for them. But at the same time, when they're sleeping or you know when life has their cognitive levels all confused, and you know that because it's a pattern. That's the time you start researching about your spiritual journey. Right? Where are you? Um, you read your word, whatever it is that, you know, that works for you. So I can't say what works for for them um, and how they feed their spirit, woman or man, but those things that you use to ground yourself, if you don't have them, find them. That's the research you're doing, right? Finding those things that help you stay calm, finding those Um, things that help you to rest. Even if you're there with your loved one, finding movies that are inspirational, right? Movies that are going to grow you because you're doing all of that, not for this time. You're doing that to prepare for the time that you're no longer a caregiver. Mm -hmm. You're seeding. You're putting seeds in your basket because that's not going to be forever. So you're, you're learning how to care for yourself in the future but you are still doing it now. Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean
2: that vision, I mean and I've had things like that too. Well of you being there, I mean I that just like touched my heart. Of you being there and there's your mom with with her, her place. And I mean that is mm-hmm. that is like because they're there. And I you know, mm-hmm. I mean and, and that part too like you said, sometimes that's a level of spirituality that no matter what you believe in, but to know that that love is still there, you know. Mm-hmm. It was there from the time, you know, generations back, and it keeps passing on and passing on and passing But that love is still there. I mean, that was, that is just like such a, a beautiful image. And like I said, I know that the things that I know that my mother would would have liked to do sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm doing it and I see it and it it just makes me happy and even for that I was my father you know because it would drive my sister crazy because after a certain point I look like my mother and he would Mm -hmm. talk to me like I was my mother but we enjoyed what we were doing you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and so I Mm -hmm. still have those kind of things to look back on you know
3: And, you you know, wherever you go, wherever you go, just know this. They're with you enjoying that. So Mm -hmm. every time I get on a plane to fly back um, on island or off island, I always smile in my spirit because I know that that part of my DNA is smiling. It's happy that it finally got to see another part of the world, right? That extension, Mm -hmm. if they dreamed it, I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I feel comfortable doing it is because they once had the vision or they once dreamed it when I was in the belly and they seated, you know, wherever I was, Mm -hmm. the reason that I'm doing it is because they, it's an extension or a continuation of something they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Wow.
2: Wow. Yeah. That is so amazing. That is really so amazing. So, you're going back and forth. Um, I know at one point you you were you were doing a consulting. First of all, did you get another dog?
3: I did not. I haven't yet. So, so this is me even in relationship. Like the dog um, Snowy was with me 17 years. So I just feel like I need a minute um, to really process Mm -hmm. that because I still miss her too. So I don't just jump, you know, just because she's gone. Like my love still is still caring for her. So I think Mm -hmm. that when we look at the release of our love, when it takes about, again, a whole 12-month cycle for them to fully transition, and so I just feel like I'm taking my time for the year so that, you know, because tr carried me for a little bit, right? So mm-hmm. I think that the dog will send me my next companion, right? Yeah. I just feel like all three of them together, they will conspire to send me my next companion.
2: Uh, that's how, I mean, hey, don't, don't, I could tell you a story about that, you know, because that's how <laughs> I had a cat that died after years. And one day I had a dream where the cat had died was like, you know what, you've been alone by enough by yourself, you should go out and get a cat, and even told me what to name it, you know, and, it, and mm-hmm. you know what, and I looked in, and I, at first I said, I don't know if I'm ready, but when I was ready, I went to a rescue place, and there was a cat named Pancake, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, See? <laughs> yeah, yeah. See? So, yeah I mean, uh, so, I mean, so I, like I so totally understand, because it was like, I had a neighbor who was immediately like, oh, you should go out and get another one. I'm going like, no, I need to have some time to process it, and I will know when it's time. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, I mean, you and I, I mean, you're going to have to be stateside, or I'm going to have to come there, and we're just going to sit down around the table with our fruity drinks and our mamas and and our grandmothers and everyone, the spirits will be all around us. And we're just going to sit and laugh about all the things so, that we have in common, you
3: know,
2: because yes.
3: they already know, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So that's what the rock tables are all about. It's, it's um, The rock means resilient women of color. And mm-hmm. and that's what I was going to tell you. So as a young girl, I would sit around the table with my aunt, my grandmother, my mom. We'd be crawfish crabs. And they would be having all of these conversations about everything, right? And so, even up until this age, we used to do it, but now we don't do it anymore. So, for me, while I was in school and I um, created a, a table talk um, at Clark for students who um, who um, dealt with suicidal um, ideation, things like that, we called it the Blue Table Talk. Um, but in the process, I started. A, a ideal for me, which was The Rock Tables, which birthed it from my dissertation. So now this year um, is about a pilot, right, to see if it's even needed, if women would even come to the table and have these authentic conversations with each other. So every month I do a talk on um, Facebook Live or I send out a Zoom um, as a private Zoom to women to come on Zoom and we it's like we're sitting at the table talking and mm-hmm. we're, we're having this conversation based on a theme which the first table was about um, taking care of yourself as a caregiver because you have mothers who are caring for children. You know, a caregiver can also be a um, a pet owner, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's however you look at it. Whoever came to the table um, and it was really, really good. So each month we talk about different topics and you know one theme brings them to the table but it wind up being like a whole bunch of other things that we talk about and so what's happening this this year is a pilot but what happens is this becomes a an electronic journal um, by which we don't have to pay money to get journals out there. Our stories will just be out there. Like I don't want money for our stories. Like so, as a consultant uh, for Enchanted Links, that's my company. This is something that we. This is what we create. We create table talks. We create businesses. We help people to do that. So for me, this is my donation to communities. The rock table. Mm-hmm. So this is, this, cause, this will cause women nothing, even, you know, once a retreat is done. It costs them nothing to come and help one another out and support one another because you, you can get a lot out of a conversation. You can breathe. You know, that's medicine to mm-hmm. know that you're not alone. You're not the only one in the world experiencing a
2: phenomenon. Yeah, really, you know. And like I said, they might not feel like talking about it then, but by coming to that face and seeing there's somebody who's like me, you know, here's somebody who's like me, let, let me, let me talk about it. Let me listen, let me talk. And maybe they'll be able to go back to their own space and find uh, uh, their village, their tribe to talk about it as they go on. That is, that is just, you know, I'm going to be watching to those because I'm going to do it. You know, I was looking in preparation for talking to you. I was looking at a lot of things. I know that you're. Um, you had a, a post to your. You call your, your grandflower. You look like your grandmother.
3: <laughs> yeah. So my grandmother was a Sagittarius son. I'm her moon baby. I'm her Sagittarius moon. Uh huh. So when you you go back and you look at the different, like I I just believe I felt this in a dream. Like my grandmother was my. my my, grand, my grandmother had me inside of my mother. Like I was supposed to be the seed that uh-huh. came out of my grandmother, but instead mom came and then I came out of mom because uh-huh. that's the connection I, I, I made. And my grandmother connected with me as a young baby. My mom's tubes were tied with me. So my, I came through my mom's tubalization, tubalization process. And that in itself is just a miracle. It was a miracle to them. And so mom um, had postpartum, um, and my aunt suffered with it too. Like most of the women had that postpartum stuff. So my grandma had me for a long time, and then grandma just went ahead and kept me, you know.
2: So, mm-hmm. hmm. yeah. so the last thing that I'm going to ask you, and, you know, in all of this, you know, in our conversations, you know, I especially think of you remember when um Judge Brown Jackson the hush quoted from Maya Angelo and how she said that we were the dream and hope of a slave. Mm-hmm. How does that resonate
3: with you? Oh my goodness, I could have just went through the T V and television and hugged her because that huh? is my belief. Like almost um probably the year my grandmother passed, I went back to over. Louisiana, and I sit next to a tree I remember when my great-great-grandmother was here. And I was a young girl, might have been about eight or nine years old, but I always remembered them in white sitting next to this tree and praying and singing, right? So all of a sudden, before I went, I had this dream that I was to go back and get the prayers that my ancestors prayed for their children's children. And that spirit said, go back and get your prayers. Go back and get your gifts, right? So as I sit next to that tree, I imagine when they planted it, they put a Bible under there. They put um, prayers that they wrote about the children's children, that the children would get education, the children would um, eventually be free to go to school, live how they want to live. All of these things, it was like like I literally seen saw them sitting there praying and writing the notes and planting them. And so I I immediately thought about that when she said that, like, hell yeah, we are definitely Uh the dream of our ancestors, and we are the prayers that they prayed for. Because there is no way some of this stuff is supposed to be happening. And even that week, I was um, nominated to sit on a committee, and first of all, somebody had nominated a white male, Um, And then I got nominated, and so me and him next to each other, and I'm looking at the computer, and I see me in a row in the picture next to this white male, right? And then the faculty had to vote for who was going to sit on this committee because this is oceanography research, right? And it was 59 to 52, the faculty picked me. Mm. And I was having an out-of-body experience, so had I not followed um, that whole um, uh, c- confirmation process, I would have been sitting there like, no, thank you. He can have it. <laughs> mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. not ready for it yet. Because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Looking at, but, but, but following that, I looked at him, I was like, I'm ready. Let's go. All
2: right. All right. That is phenomenal. That is, that is phenomenal. Well, I have to say, It has been an absolute joy talking to you. Um, I hope that we can do this again. Um, I hope that we, at one point in the very near future, can connect together in person, as they say, in real time. Um, I know our mothers are up there talking like, we know our girls are supposed to get together.
3: (laughs) Right, right, right. They're going to make it happen
2: hmm mm-hmm. they're going to make it happen, so I'm not even worried about how or when, right. you know, it, yeah. it will. But I want to thank you for taking time with me this afternoon. I mean, there's so much more that, like I said, I hope that we can talk again. We can talk offline and figure out which direction we want to talk about more. We might want to talk about the table um, as that develops and see how it does, but I look forward to talking to you again, and I am so happy to have made your acquaintance. Sure, and same year.
3: And, yeah, whatever you need. I don't mind.
1: (laughs) I want to thank my guest, consultant, community advocate, educator, and author, Dr. Enshante Franklin. She shares information and tips learned from her years as a caregiver For family members, and her workshops, giving the self-love energy while caregiving the resilient women of color. Be sure and follow collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.